Okay, welcome. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Mason. I'm director of the Middle East Center here at LSE. Uh, welcome to our event, Palestine and the Politics of Decolonization. This is going to take place until half past seven. Uh, before I introduce uh, our illustrious speaker, uh, Professor Abdul Razak Takriti from the University of Houston, um, let me just say that the format, oh, first thing, some of you said it's a bit warm in here. We are trying to deal with that, okay? And sort out to make it a little bit less oppressive, okay? Um, the format is the uh, presentation will take, pl will take about half an hour and we'll leave, as usual, plenty of time for you to ask questions from the floor. And I'll say something about how we do that when we get to that point. Uh, just to remind you, please, uh, to silence your phones if you've not already done so. Let you know the talk is being recorded. Uh, as with most of our uh, talks, we're going to record it, and it will be available as a podcast after the event on the LSE uh, Middle East Centre website. Uh, please go to our website. Check us out if you haven't. You can register, get our publications, newsletter, and podcasts of uh, previous events. That's the advertising bit. Oh, if you want to tweet about the event, the hashtag is uh, LSE Palestine. Okay, all one word. Um, to our speaker, uh, Abdul Razak Takriti. He's the inaugural uh, Arab American Educational Foundation Chair in more Modern Arab History and Director of the Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston. Um, his fo uh, research focuses in on uh, the history of revolutions, anti colonialism, global intellectual currents, and state formation in the modern Arab world. He is the author. Of Monsoon Revolution, Republican Sultans and Empires in Oman, 1965 to 1976, which is this excellent book here, which he's just kindly signed for me, my copy. Um, what the bio doesn't say is uh, he's also received uh, prizes for your research. Maybe you're, we've been too modest in, in your initial bio uh, from both the American Middle East Studies Association and the British Institute for Middle East Studies. So, so the, uh, the bio is even more glowing than the one I have in front of me. He's also co-author with Carmen Nabusi from Oxford University of the Palestinian Revolution, sorry, the Palestinian Revolution website, uh, learnpalestine.politics.ox.ac.uk, which recently won another prize, the 2019 Middle East Studies Association of North America's Undergraduate Education Award. Fantastic online resource. Please check it out if you uh, are interested. I will just wait for these uh, uh, folks to come in and settle down before we start. So what I would ask respectfully is that you hold off, even if you're burning questions when the speaker is talking to ask those questions, so we'll wait until the end of the talk and we'll open for questions. We've got plenty of time, we've got about an hour, so everybody's going to get a chance to, to ask their question, okay? Before the speaker starts, can you join me first in giving him a good old-fashioned LSE welcome? Thank you very much, uh, Michael, and it's a great uh, honor to be here. I'm very grateful to you and to Ola and to the rest of the Middle East Center crew here at the LSE for uh, inviting me. Um, the subject uh, that you asked me to address today uh, is the question of uh, decolonization as it intersects with uh, Palestine. Uh, 
And I think that Palestine has uh, a significant uh, meaning uh, for understanding the politics of decolonization, a term that is uh, widely used today. Uh, and if we think historically, Palestine is intimately connected with the development of the term uh, and uh, with its uh, current uh, trajectory. Uh, as, I'm, as I hope to show today, uh, it also uh, tests the limits uh, of this term and the limits of this uh, framework um, that we hear so much about uh, today. So, you know, in the present day, we hear uh, the word decolonization everywhere in the cultural and academic sphere. Uh, we hear the universities uh, establishing decolonization committees. Uh, we hear colleagues in departments uh, debating on how to decolonize a curriculum, how to decolonize academic jobs, how to decolonize academic hiring processes, etc., etc., etc. In the cultural sphere, people talk about decolonizing museums, archives, and a whole host of uh, other uh, uh, institutions. Um, but decolonization has a much older history uh, than that. And if we go back uh, to the earliest uh, usages of the term, uh, which existed back in the heydays of the anti-colonial era, um, we see uh, that uh, it served a different set of purposes uh, back then. Uh, so. Uh, during the anti-colonial era, when we read uh, someone like Franz Fanon, for example, uh, for him, decolonization uh, is used within a fra broader framework of national liberation and the national liberation struggle, a revolutionary struggle uh, that, is, that has a, a concreteness to it in space and uh, time. Decolonization uh, uh, operates as a supplementary uh, uh, element to that uh, uh, struggle, you know. So it's it's coupled. Uh, the intellectual agenda here is coupled with a very concrete political project, uh, with a very concrete uh, 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 set of steps on the ground, and those uh, are not just framed in terms of the D uh, uh, connected to uh, decolonization. Uh, they're connected to the uh, uh, word anti, anti-colonialism, which is a much stronger uh, uh, term. Uh, that connotes total opposition to the colonial uh, project. Uh, let me illustrate the significance uh, uh, of this uh, gap between the D and the anti. Um, many of the people that would be comfortable uh, with uh, being associated with the decolonization agenda today, in many Western institutions for sure, would be uncomfortable with being associated with the anti colonial agenda. And that's not just uh, uh, the sort of discomfort uh, that arises out of being associated with the negative. You know, because sometimes people, you know, have these debates, you know, I want to be associated with positive, uh, you know, uh, formulations uh, and uh, positive uh, terms. Well, this is uh, more than that. Um, it has to do with uh, a, a much deeper uh, intellectual uh, uh, question the question of processing uh, the reality of colonialism, taking a political position uh, towards it. Um, decolonization in today's academic and cultural sphere can operate, doesn't necessarily have to, but can operate in isolation of an anti-colonial agenda. So there is a, a tension here uh, between uh, older uh, conceptions of the term and 
new usages uh, of it. Someone like Fanon uh, would not have accepted uh, anything less than a total national liberation project. Would not have conceived of colonialism in absence of uh, the, a total reformulation of the international state system, uh, of uh, the international economic order, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, the older uh, terminology of decolonization uh, was not only used by people like uh, uh, Fanon. It was also used in uh, uh, scholarship that, was of an, uh, imp that took an imperialist character. In the studies of the British Empire and the French Empire, uh, often we see uh, people describing uh, the period uh, uh, in, by w in which the, uh, the majority of the countries of the world gained their independence from Britain and France and other colonial powers uh, in, uh, you, with, with reference to the word decolonization. Now, what that does, what that does uh, is that it, uh, uh, it allows for a certain neutrality in the description of what took place. Because when you just say decolonization, um, it uh, doesn't allow you to, to conceive of uh, the project of the location from which uh, this process was launched. You know, uh, it becomes, you know, it allows uh, for historians uh, uh, that put, uh, put forth arguments uh, claiming that uh, Britain or France left uh, on their own whim, for example, uh, to, uh, to make those claims. They can use the word decolonization. It doesn't uh, allow for us to really specify that this was a process that these colonial powers were forced into. Yeah. Uh, whereas when we think of it as national liberation, the word liberation carries out uh, a much stronger normative meaning. Uh, it, uh, it, in, uh, additionally, uh, it carries out, uh, uh, it has an active dimension to it in the process. There is an, uh, for liberation to take place, somebody must have uh, been working towards that liberation. Uh, somebody must have been uh, liberating themselves. So we're placing then uh, the colonial peoples on, on the uh, map there. That's why, if you look at uh, the language uh, of confronting colonialism in places like the Arab world, um, for example, in Arabic, we don't use the word decolonization. We use the word tahrir, liberation. And uh, this is very important uh, for us to, to know. Um, so you had this Fanonist anti-colonial conception, uh, and it's not just Fanon, it's a whole range of people, of course, but you know, we just use them to illustrate. Uh, you have the, um, uh, uh, the historiographic uh, conception, which I think is, uh, uh, is deeply problematic and could cover for a whole range of, uh, uh, act as a cover for a whole range of problematic uh, positions in relation to what took place in uh, uh, formerly colonized countries. And then you have a more uh, legal uh, conception of, uh, of the term that is developed uh, uh, as an outcome of anti-colonial struggles uh, within the United Nations and elsewhere. So in 1960, of course, there was the UN uh, uh, Special Committee on Decolonization was uh, uh, you know, formed uh, after the uh, passing in 1960 of Resolution 1514 
which was the Declaration on the Granting of Independence to Colonial Countries and Peoples. So, you know, we have this other other uh, dimension there, uh, which still uh, is there on the books uh, to this very day. You know, um, this conception does exist. Now, where Palestine fits into this is that Palestine in the in this period that we're talking about, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the heydays of anti-colonialism, could be placed within uh, a very clear uh, location conceptually, at least uh, in the Afro-Asian uh, and uh, later on the Latin American uh, spheres. Uh, it could be viewed as part of uh, a family of revolutions uh, that were a family of liberation struggles uh, that were attempting to overthrow uh, a global system of domination. You know, it had uh, sister uh, revolutions in uh, South Africa, for example, which had, uh, which was dealing with a settler colonial project. It had a sister, uh, sister revolution in Algeria. And of course, Algeria was the older sister in a sense because it inspired uh, many of the basic tenets of the uh, Palestinian revolution, uh, and it inspired much of the uh, discourse and outlook and uh, method uh, that was applied uh, in the Palestinian uh, struggle. Um, and then, you, you know, you had all, uh, besides these uh, struggles against settler colonialism, you had also struggles against imperial uh, domination and control and military adventures in, in, in Vietnam and, and, and elsewhere. Um, you, you had uh, uh, the struggles uh, unfolding across the globe uh, for economic as well as uh, uh, political and cultural sovereignty. So within that world, Palestine had a clear location. In the Western countries at the time, Palestine was not identified within those range of struggles except within certain sectors of the left. So there was no language to speak about Palestine. The language around Palestine was uh, basically a language of erasure or a language for covering up for colonial relations by uh, misinterpreting, misrepresenting, uh, uh, and decontextualizing what was going on in that particular zone. So, um, and that was set up epistemologically very, er very early on, you know, uh, because the language on Palestine was developed by the Zionist movement. The colonizers of Palestine developed the language around which Palestine was discussed and gave it to the colonial power, Britain. Um, and if you look at the history very seriously and you examine the archives, uh, particularly the correspondences between Chaim Wiseman, just around the time when Britain had invaded Palestine and was beginning to uh, establish its military administration there, the framework for ruling Palestine was uh, developed through exchanges between Chaim Wiseman, who was the leader of the Zionist movement in Britain, and British colonial officials. And he had a whole range of uh, uh, people that were uh, contributing to this effort within the British colonial administration and that shared the basic propositions uh, that were to govern uh, colonial practice in that zone. The main basic proposition was that the native population had some civic rights and some uh, religious rights, but did not have political rights and did not have national rights. 
So the population that was on the ground in Palestine at the time had no, uh, was to be stripped actually of political and national rights it, that it had previously enjoyed. People forget that even under Ottoman rule, Palestinians were Ottoman citizens. Certainly uh, since uh, the Ottoman reforms of the 19th century, you know, and since the constitutional uh, period in the Ottoman Empire, they had the right to vote. They sent actual representatives to the Ottoman uh, uh, parliament in the same way that other uh, members of that territory, uh, uh, you know, members of that empire uh, had those rights. You know, they enjoyed exactly the same rights. The same type of franchise applied to them, the same sort of uh, nationality uh, laws applied to them. And this is important to note because sometimes people mix up things and they tell you, oh, British colonialism it was the same as a continuation of Ottoman colonialism, Palestinians never were people, never were nationality. Actually, it doesn't matter if you had an independent Palestine or not. The real question is, were the people in Palestine citizens or not? Did they have political rights or not? Did they have, uh, as for the national rights, you know, they enjoyed exactly the same national status as other uh, 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 peoples within the Ottoman Empire. So at least there was an equality in the uh, status within the imperial uh, uh, dynamics, at least on the legal level, on the official level. But under formal European colonial rule, whether it's French rule in, in uh, Syria and Lebanon or whether it's British rule, in, uh, in Palestine and elsewhere, there's no equality between people in the metropolises and uh, people in these territories. And Palestine got the worst deal out of all of those peoples, because at least for Syrians or Lebanese or people that were in uh, 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 Transjordan at the time, and later became Jordan, there was a recognition that uh, uh, that there would be eventual independence, and that there had there was a political uh, a recognition of eventual political rights. You know, uh, it's just that those rights were to be suspended during the paternalistic per period of the mandate, which is a horrible period of colonization and violence. I want I don't want to belittle it, but the situation in Palestine was much more extreme. So we have the framework for talking about Palestine. That takes this for granted, the absence of political rights, the absence of national rights, and everything else is built around it. Chaim Wiseman, in a letter to Balfour, he told him he must ensure that, that uh, uh, the population, the local population now is unfit for dem democracy. Okay? Because if they get democratic rights, then they will reject the Balfour Declaration, they will reject the establishment of a Jewish national homeland there. And Balfour justified this, later on he even added in various correspondences, that um, uh, when, when, when considering and constructing British policy, Britain should not just think of the population in that territory uh, uh, or the uh, demographic balances there, which were 90 plus percent of the population were actually uh, Palestinian Arabs of uh, either Christian or uh, Muslim uh, background, majority of them were Muslims, of course, and some also, uh, also local Palestinian Jews. They didn't take account of, of those. Yeah? What was important was all the Jews that did not live in Palestine, all the Jews that were citizens of Russia, all the Jews that were citizens of Poland, they were to be merged into this category of people who have the right to that land 
a greater right because they, they had the recognized political right and the national right there than the native population of that land. How did they cover up for the, these set of relations? By inventing this duality between Arab and Jew and saying that the role of Britain is to manage the Arab-Jewish relations, is to act as the mediator. This was the original honest broker myth. Before the Americans came up with this honest broker, and we just saw the latest uh, outcomes of that, you know, Trump coming in saying he's serving Palestinians. He knows, of course, what's best for them. And what's best for them is to continue the colonization project, is to expand it, to increase the land grab, to achieve the final outcome that was started by Britain, that outcome of demographic transformation. This, country, this country's project in Palestine was very clear from the very beginning. It was a project of demographically altering that geographic zone, displacing its inhabitants. And there were a full range of uh, uh, justifications that were constructed around it, a full body, a range of bodies of knowledge that were developed to hide that fact and that continued to be developed later on. So we started at first with uh, this Arab versus Jew uh, uh, model. And this continues to this very day, of course, even amongst circles that claim to be implementing a decolonization agenda in the curriculum and so on. They come and tell you, oh, we have to bring a Palestinian speaker and a Jewish speaker. Or we have to bring a Palestinian speaker and an Israeli speaker for balance. Because there's no such thing as a Palestinian narrative that is uh, uh, standing in its own right, that is freestanding. There are no Palestinian concerns. It's just that we're managing here two sides and we're trying to balance them. Okay? We're not dealing with a project of liberation or national liberation. We're dealing with you know, a project of balance, trying to alter the balance. You know, it's the same when they talk of the curriculum now, decolonization of the curriculum. They talk about it in terms of balance sometimes. The people who have not absorbed, really, the anti-colonial principles, you know, they come and talk of the uh, curriculum. They tell you, oh, yeah, let's add uh, Tony Morrison to Shakespeare, and uh, then we'll be fine. You know, just put in a, 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 a black woman in there, and, uh, you know, the white dead author will be balanced, and we're okay. No problem. But we're not changing the, real, the basic normative uh, presuppositions that underlie the entire pedagogical process. You know, and we cannot do that when it comes to these uh, uh, struggles, when it comes to these realities, because when we're trying to confront realities of oppression, be it colonial oppression or gender oppression or anything else, or, or economic oppression, class oppression, um, this is not just about ter terms, this is not just about affirmative action, this is not just about feeling, it's about changing the way we view the world. It's about being uh, uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, the very way we talk about things affects how we act on them. And uh, when it comes to Palestine, this has been a big hurdle in the uh, development of the Palestinian struggle uh, in this uh, country, and I will focus on, on this country specifically. Because uh, we ended up with uh, a switch 
and I'm talking here about the, the, the circles that are sympathetic with uh, something like uh, uh, the, uh, the Palestinian, uh, 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 you know, at least not the liberation project, but you know, at least uh, sympathetic to Palestinian suffering. We've had a shift from the old national liberation model, which existed on the margins of uh, this society, to new models uh, that adopt this decolonization agenda, but they're rooted in identity politics. Okay? So it becomes a, and that's more relevant to people here than people there. This is what, what shocks me the most about this, is that we lose then the empathy and the understanding and the willingness to uh, stand with people uh, on the basis of uh, the politics of solidarity that is rooted in a project of uh, liberation. And it ends up becoming a conversation about us. Yeah, I feel oppressed. This becomes a conversation. Okay? But the real, uh, when we're talking about national liberation politics, it's not just about my identity, my feeling of being oppressed. It's about what is my vision for a future world in which those that are affected by settler colonialism, which are the people of Palestine today, and we're really talking about settler colonialism, look at Trump's map. Okay? It's about acquisition of territory. And it's about preventing Palestinian refugees from returning to the territory from which they were expelled. It's about forcing Jerusalemites out of their lands. And it's about placing Palestinians in, uh, who have Israeli citizenship in a constant situation of insecurity and potentially getting denationalized. And it's about preventing them from owning lands because more, the vast majority of lands within the states of Israel are racialized. You're only allowed to own land, certain huge swaths of land that are actually stolen from the Palestinian people to begin with if you're Jewish. There's a whole range of laws out there that ensure the, uh, the expansion of the settler colonial uh, project. But when we speak about decolonization language today, if it becomes about identity politics and it becomes about self-referential exercises here, we're forgetting about the people there. We're shifting the, uh, uh, our mode of solidarity. And, uh, and here, actually, I think Robin Kelly captured it really well a few years back. Uh, and for those who, who don't know Robin's work, he's, he's fantastic. He's, uh, he's one of the leading African-American thinkers today. He said that he remembers a time, because you know, he lived in both uh, phases. He said he remembers a time when solidarity was about uh, common resistance. It's conceptualized in terms of resistance. And what he's noticed today is that it's about victimhood. So he says, like, for me, this is a big shift. Because in the old days, we used to view something like Palestine as an inspiration uh, for African-Americans in the United States trying to resist a project of uh, racial discrimination on a mass scale. Um, they, they saw themselves as part of uh, a project for resistance. Now, it's about, there are discussions of commonalities and intersectionality, but they're rooted in a, and an epistemology of, that is rooted in victimhood, which is a problem. Because if the initial starting point is I'm a victim, and that's my approach to uh, coloniality, then I can't connect with others in a way that allows for genuine solidarity. It becomes more about me. 
and and it opens the space for a race uh, to uh, you know who's the bigger victim. Um, to wrap up, Palestine tests many of the basic presuppositions of uh, the colonial uh, discourse today, and. Um, it's kind of strange, actually, to be talking about this uh, decolonial discourse in a, in a critical way because, in a sense, it was Pal many Palestinian thinkers helped contribute to shaping it in the first place, uh, but then it took a different course. So uh, many of the uh, people that talk of decolonial agendas today trace it back to Edward Said and, and people like that. And they forget that Edward Said, at the end of the day, was not just a so-called post-colonial thinker, a term that he did not like, by the way. Because he's from Palestine, he knows that colonialism is not post. Okay, it's the present-day colonialism. Yeah, um, but you know, people like uh, uh, like him, when you when you read them, they had a very different agenda. Their agenda was about challenging the reality of contemporary settler colonialism and changing our knowledge to be able to fight it in the present. It wasn't about. Uh, 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 developing a politics of identity in, in, the, in the metropole today. And it wasn't about uh, developing uh, um, a politics of uh, victimization, certainly. What it was about was joining a broader universal politics of liberation. And uh, later on, decolonization started to take a different uh, uh, course and perhaps in the question and answer period uh, I can uh, discuss some of the specificities of why uh, uh, this took place intellectually and, and we can talk more about that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, Professor Tequiti. That was a very, very strong Persuasive, persuasive argument. I, I can't believe that there won't be questions out there on the basis of that, so I'm sure there will be. Just a few ground rules before we start the question-answer session. Um, if you do want to ask a question, I'll ask you to put your hand up. Uh, we ask you to ask one brief question each, please. Um, we invite you, this is not compulsory, we invite you to identify yourself before you ask the question. And uh, we have a microphone. Oh, I can see it. Yeah. So when you put your hand up, uh, although it's, a fit, it's not a massive room, please wait for the microphone because this is being recorded for the audio podcast. So it's important that we capture the questions on the microphone. Um, lastly, I think I'll try and do this. We'll do perhaps uh, three questions in each round, mm -hmm. okay? And, and I'll, I'll try and make sure everybody gets in and, we, and, the, and the questions are distributed fairly between different uh, parts of the audience. Okay, who would like to start... I have one hand at the back, please. Right at the back, the lady, yeah? And the gentleman in front of her as well after, yeah? And the Thank third one, yeah. On this side first, yeah? Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Zina Ara. I'm a policy analyst with the Shebeke Palestinian Think Tank. Um, so I'm really interested in, I suppose, the the comparison between decolonialism and anti-colonialism, such as I understand it. And I think that kind of tux, ties into Tuck and Yang's argument in 2012 about how do you, what, you know, how do you disseparate misnomers of decolonization, i.e. decolonizing curricula and stuff, versus actual decolonization. And, and for her, she is, or for them, they attribute it to the literal repatriation of land from settler to indigenous. Um, of course, they're speaking in, a, in the context of the US, but I'm curious, particularly from a Palestinian context, when we talk 
talk about decolonization in a literal sense, moving away from the, the hijacking of, of anti-colonial discourse or um, you know, all, all of the phenomena you outlined so well in your talk, how can we actually conceptualize the return of the land from settler to indigenous, not just in this political moment, but you know, what does that mean uh, for the future? And I think part of the problem, and perhaps it's a very quick related question, is when we talk about this, often I find we look back to the Nekber, we look back to the land as it was in 48, instead of what a possible reimaginary could be for the millions of refugees, land rights, and so on and so forth. So, thank you. Thank you. And then next one, the gentleman in front of you. Yeah, thank you very much. My name is Vesi. I'm a research fellow at SOAS. I've got one question. It was very impressive, by the way, your talk. Uh, my question is actually about the... The, the role of the Palestinian leadership in the process of uh, colonialism, actually. We cannot just, uh, I mean, ignore this side, you know, this kind of, let's, I don't know how you, intra-colonialism, inter, inter, I don't know how you, we should actually conceptualize it, but actually it's also very crucial that the change the, this kind of politics of uh, you know, people, like this liberation of people into the politics of po the own party, political party, and this kind of narrow-minded interest, and maybe, yeah, it's also very interesting. Okay, thank you. And we'll take, we've got one uh, last question this round at the back. Somebody put their hand up. Is it right at the back? Can I see? Yes, lady, right at the back. Hi, thank you. My name is Nissa. I'm studying um, empires, colonialism, and globalization. Um, my question is that you touched upon the victimization process that is in the discussion now. Um, I'd just like to ask um, something regarding that, that, um, you know, when in the West we are discussing Palestine, um, often the discussions are regarding, you know, providing them with economic relief. And, you know, when you're, when you're talking about them as if they're, you know, some peoples who are in need of aid, it sort of shifts away the focus from the political problem and the, the idea of liberation by distracting the, the, pe the public um, as if they're sort of disaster-stricken people who need help in economic form. So uh, can you elaborate on that? Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate the first question, actually. Uh, I think it's very important uh, to uh, imagine uh, the, uh, what does actual... Uh, political process uh, look like that would allow for liberation. Uh, and uh, part of the uh, critique, of course, and the problem with uh, uh, huge swaths of uh, um, so-called decolonization discourse is that it does not address that problem. And the main problem that I was trying to hint at is that uh, decolonization doesn't work if it's, it doesn't, does not work if it's depoliticized. And that's why there has to be uh, an anti-colonial imaginary. Uh, there has to be uh, a national liberation ima imaginary when we're talking about uh, these subjects. Now, um, it's the, part of the obstacle for uh, uh, Palestinian, uh, uh, for the Palestinian struggle and struggles of its kind in today's world. After the uh, success of uh, sister revolutions in at least achieving some levels of political independence, if not uh, economic and uh, other forms of uh, independence, uh, is that it, 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 it became, uh, uh, in a way, orphaned. You know, uh, Palestine uh, has a certain status uh, that is uh, uh, very much similar to... Uh, uh, settler colonial projects in Africa and Asia. 
It's quite different than uh, the settler colonial projects in the Americas and Australia, although it has many similarities with them, and that's, of course, discussed by scholars like Patrick Wolf and others, these similarities. And there's ways that the, the similarities uh, are very important, the fact that colonialism is a continuum in all of these places, the fact that it's about land and about uh, land theft and so on and so forth. But the, uh, the main difference, of course, is, uh, uh, is a demographic one. Uh, in places like South Africa, in places like Palestine, uh, in uh, places like Algeria, the uh, project of demographic dis destruction uh, was uh, uh, did not reach the heights, uh, or uh, you know, not for the lack of will, possibly, but at the end of the day, there there is still a large indigenous population that is in fact larger than the uh, uh, colonist population if you take account of all the refugees that were expelled from the land. Um, and the problem is about them. Their very existence is the problem for the Western countries and uh, for uh, the Israeli state. Uh, many Western governments uh, uh, wish away, all of them, in fact, wish away the refugees, and wish they would, would not exist. They're willing to allow for all oh, Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, yeah, that's fine, because then, and they even say it explicitly, they say that guarantees a Jewish, a Jewish majority in the land, yeah? But the demographic factor is what they worry about. That's why they, they talk about it in the way uh, they talk about it. So when we're imagining uh, the uh, Palestinian uh, uh, you know, form of the decolonization, it has similarities to uh, what takes place in the uh, US and Canada and the language that comes out of those zones, uh, and Australia certainly. But it also has its own language that's quite different, you know, and that suits its own needs and realities, you know, um, in uh, uh, places like the U.S. today or Canada today, um, the struggle is over, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, lands that belong to uh, uh, reservations that are being under threat. The struggle is around uh, preserving whatever bits of land that have been left. And I'm talking here the concrete struggle as we see it today, you know. Uh, Possibly there could be a, str uh, uh, a struggle in the future uh, developed towards expanding those lands, but we don't see that at the moment. It's, a, it's very much trying to defend whatever land has been left in the hands of uh, uh, indigenous leaderships. And of course there is the struggle for equality, the struggle for uh, uh, a better uh, uh, distribution of resources, the struggle for all of these uh, things in, in those societies. In Palestine... It's, it's very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, similar to older struggles uh, for uh, 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 survival. Because the project, you know, the end goal of the Israeli project is to reach a situation similar to that existing in North America and Australia today. They want to uh, have a situation where Palestinians are left in Sorry. reservations. Can you hold your question until the next one of questions, yeah? Mm. Thanks. Yeah. The, the the whole hope, and this is Trump's new plan, is 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 part of that, is to create you know small reservations or call them bantu stands, call them whatever you want, in which you know Palestinians have some limited forms of uh, 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 you know self governance, not very dissimilar from band councils in Canada or uh, you know uh, uh, structures like that, and uh, where the uh, colonist population. Uh, uh, has an overwhelming demographic majority, which is why, of course, the Israeli government 
wants to also create a situation of tension for Jews across Europe and the rest of the world because, you know, Netanyahu, whenever there's any anti-Semitic incident in France or elsewhere, it issues these invitations for uh, Jews to leave their own countries and to come and settle uh, in uh, Palestine. So the whole project is about, you know, simple demographics. Um, they have not achieved that yet. So the Palestinian political imaginary is not just about repatriation of land. It's about the liberation of the whole territory. Okay. Now the Israeli state comes, and this is part of the problem with decolonization discourse in this country. Many people who talk about decolonization, if they hear me say liberation of the whole territory, they'll be like, oh, oh you're calling for the destruction of Israel. No, I'm not calling for the destruction of Israel. I'm calling for the resurrection of Palestine. I'm calling for the reversal of colonialism, seizing colonialism. I don't want a single uh, uh, person to be hurt by this process. Okay? Those are two different things. Imagining a democratic future for everyone in that land has been a native demand for a long time. You know, actually, the Palestinian uh, leadership, even in the 1920s, you know, people sometimes say, yeah, we were talking about uh, democracy in that land uh, only after uh, the PLO adopted the one-state uh, formula in 1968. Absolutely not. In the 1920s, people were saying, we want universal suffrage. That is the Palestinian solution for the problem there. Universal suffrage means that even the colonists, despite the fact that they come from Poland and Russia and various other parts, you know, by the way, native peoples tend to be very generous, you know. People imagine them as the big threat. They're the ones that are driven, are driven out to the sea. They're the ones that are expelled from their land. They're the ones that suffer all of this. But when they're offering political solutions, they tend to be very generous, whether it's African-Americans in the U.S., whether it's South Africans. They were so gracious with the Africans. Uh, you know, people that have uh, that have uh, uh, committed all these atrocities against them all these years, subjected them into the most horrific systems of racial domination. They were like, okay, we, we're offering you a democratic solution. Yeah. So we have the same thing in Palestine. I think we can uh, uh, think in those terms uh, there. Uh, the problem, the hurdle is, of course, uh, Netanyahu now is, uh, uh, has established an entire ministry that is designed to combat anti-colonial epistemology in the West under the guise of Hasbara. Okay, this ministry to combat BDS, this ministry to, uh, that, that focuses uh, uh, on the project of calling any solidarity with Palestine anti-Semitism, the successful effort of that initiative in Britain, for example, in France, in other places, through changing the meaning of anti-Semitism from actually uh, the uh, opposition to, to Jews to uh, critique of Israel, we have a problem here in, the, in these countries that uh, contributes to uh, uh, preventing us from uh, from feeling uh, and sensing and engaging with uh, Palestinian visions for liberation. Uh, the second question, Palestinian leadership, I absolutely agree with you, but uh, I want to highlight one thing. Part of uh, uh, the problem of talking about Palestine is that people often displace uh, uh, the discussion into, you know, oh, yeah, and it's this leadership, and it's uh, Arafat, or it's Abu Mazen, or whatever. And, of course, you know, internally within Palestine, we have many uh, critiques of, uh, uh, of, of this uh, situation. But 
We should not forget that this is very typical of all colonial situations. You know, this did not come out of a vacuum. This came out of a process whereby the Palestinian revolution was literally through direct British and American and Israeli intervention. Of course, you know, uh, uh, the whole Western uh, state uh, system was trying to destroy the efforts of this refugee people to regain its homeland. It's quite actually, you know, one time... Um, uh, I'm, I'm currently writing an intro for a, a memoir of a, refu- a Palestinian uh, from Nazareth, a witness 1948. He's a Nakba survivor. Uh, and um, he, he has a, a very touching bit in his memoir. His mother in 1948 was like, what have we done to the whole world, all of those countries? Why are they so set on destroying us? You know, this is like a simple, you know, person living in a, a in a small Palestinian town called Nazareth. You know, whose only claim to fame is Jesus. Uh, the, you know, and she understands the whole process. Why is it that all of these countries are so invested in destroying the small, uh, principally rural population that hasn't ever hurt anyone? She said that actually. We never hurt anyone. What, what, what did we do to to gain this? You know, so we see this situation. Uh, uh, I think that. Uh, part of the process of colonialism is, of course, developing uh, 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 mechanisms of co-optation through exercising such pressure, um, whereby people uh, develop something that uh, uh, I sometimes refer to as uh, chronophobia. Leaders uh, in these areas start fearing time, and they think that if they don't agree to a settlement now, the land will shrink further. And that's part of the way they co-opt leaders. It's not just bad intent or they buy them or whatever. It's also the genuine thinking that, you know, uh, Arafat was often haunted by Haj Amin Husseini, you know, who had rejected a horrible uh, a treaty that he should have rejected, you know, the, the partition uh, uh, plan. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know... And then, like, uh, you know, people start uh, constructing all these uh, ideas of, yeah, maybe we should agree to a part of our land so that we don't lose everything. Yeah? When you're dealing with the, these, uh, uh, you know, negotiations uh, and you're in, a, in the less powerful position, you often get put in these uh, uh, scenarios, and we should never forget the context of that. Um, it doesn't, by the way, uh, uh, withdraw responsibility or relieve them of the responsibility for uh, these concessions. Uh, the last question uh, about victimization. Um, what was, uh, remind me of it uh, actually, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, so it was just expanding that the fact that the, a lot of authorities and um, um, organizations in the West are focusing, um, trying to focus the attention away from the political mm-hmm. problem and the liberation problem towards it being an yes. economic yeah, I, I remember problem. it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so actually what's amazing is um, any genuine epistemology actually and, and anti-colonial epistemology will entail at its core hearing the voices of uh, the people who are oppressed and who are facing, uh, uh, who are in struggle against oppression. And if we hear uh, what the Palestinians were saying, in the, from the moment uh, uh, when uh, the Nakba happened, uh, and especially in the 1950s, you know, there were all these projects that were established to deal with the effects of the Nakba. The, something uh, uh, incredible happened in 1948, something horrific happened in 1948, which is, and uh, uh, right after the passing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all of that kind of stuff, uh, you had an entire population 
uh, of a territory being displaced from that territory. Okay, quite you know, think of it in these terms. It's uh, it's very interesting. The vast majority of Palestinians uh, who had resided within the boundaries of uh, the Israeli uh, state uh, today, or th that is built, of course, on the debris of uh, of their villages and towns and cities, uh, ended up being expelled from those territories. Yeah. So how did they deal uh, uh, with that uh, international community, including this country, which was responsible for this? It was the main country that was responsible for this, but of course also including the U.S. Uh, uh, and others, by conceptualizing it as a humanitarian crisis. And refugees across the refugee camps in the 50s, most of their struggle was uh, uh, geared towards rejecting humanitarian discourse. Because they were saying, they are not a humanitarian problem. We are human beings with aspirations, with political projects, with a vision of peoplehood and independence and democracy. And uh, uh, to say, yeah, we'll uh, feed you, at the, you know, we'll, we'll calculate the bare minimum of calories that you intake that you're supposed to take to stay alive, and that's our, the, the limit of our responsibility to you, which is, of course, exemplified in UNRWA, yeah? Like, we'll provide them with education and, and some uh, food rations, yeah? Uh, and now, now they're not even going for that. Now they're saying we want to eradicate the very category of Palestinian refugee, you know? which is quite, uh, you know, incredible. Yeah, that's not what the refugees uh, 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 wanted. They struggled very hard against it. And if we hear their struggle and listen to it, we see uh, uh, what's going on in that period. Thank you. Um, three more questions. There's a gentleman at the back. We'll start with first. And we'll mix around because the back's well represented. Uh, gentleman here and here. We'll come back to you next round, okay? Um, my name is Jeffrey Ben Nathan, private researcher. <clears throat> just published a booklet called Palestinians or Jews, Whose Land Is It? It's Both. And the idea that it's both is based on the fact that the two peoples, the Jews and the Palestinians, or in their previous incarnations as Israelites and Canaanites, um, were together for 700 years and intermarried and so on. And the living proof of that today, sir, and this is what I want to ask you if you're aware of it, and if you can talk to us about it, is the DNA. And I have a research paper here which says that the genetic continuity in both populations, Palestinian and Jewish, despite the long separation and the wide geographical dispersion of the Jews, is very close indeed. So rather than being axiomatic that there are two different peoples, this booklet is dedicated to the idea that there are actually one people who, from far back history, were closely related to each other and still are today. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll two questions up here. Just wait again, wait for the microphone. Uh, hi, my name is Akram. I'm a, I'm a migrant rights campaigner in London. Um, on the last uh, response, Abed, you were saying about um, the humanitarian uh, paradigm, and the last question that was asked was about the humanitarian paradigm. There's also another one which is coming uh, up, which is being used more recently that I wanted to ask about, which is around... And you said this in your description of what was happening under the, um, the Balfour Declaration, which was uh, the, the denial of political and uh, national rights and maintaining cultural and religious rights, is that there's been an increasing focus on ways in which we can talk about individual rights violations. And then a lot of the solidarity campaigns, uh, uh, increasingly perhaps in some sectors, there's a language which starts to talk about 
um, decreasing individual violations and uh, essentially begging Israeli military governors to restrict. So I just that paradigm is entering into the discourse a bit more, and I think that that's part of the what's what's the challenges. And I'd just like you to maybe touch on a few of those themes, if possible. Thank you. And the gentleman behind you. Thank you. I'm Andy Simons. I'm retired from the British Library. I run a bibliography of uh, English language books on the history of the Palestinian struggle. And just on the off chance, in 1968, uh, a French writer, Marxist, Maxime Rodison, if I'm saying his name correctly, that's the first instance that I know of someone using the term settler colonial, not just colonialist, but colonial settlers. And was there anything earlier that you know about? Thank you. I'll come back to you next round, okay? Thanks. Okay. Uh, so uh, the first uh, uh, comment, uh, the issue of uh, Arab and Jews, of course, uh, uh, we can argue uh, about Arab-Jewish relations and connections and cultural similarities uh, for a long time. Uh, and uh, we can see many intersections culturally and, uh, uh, and you know, historically. Uh, but there's a problem with the premise of uh, uh, on which you 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 base uh, uh, this vision i think at least uh, if i understood it correctly um because the premise reminds me actually of colonial uh, discussions about even palestine and other uh, places when the mandate was being set up and later on when unscope uh, the the un committee that uh, came up with the partition plan they used the same logic they go and they trace you know uh, current realities to an imagined uh, archaic uh, past, uh, you know, and uh, the first people that started this kind of uh, uh, method of thinking about the territory were, of course, uh, the Zionist movement, you know, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, shared with many uh, colonial uh, forms of uh, nationalism. It was uh, not just a colonial movement, but also a nationalist movement. It combined both, yeah. Uh, it was an, a colonial nationalism. Uh, it imagined a past. Uh, uh, whereby the territory was owned by Jews uh, almost exclusively, you know, and other periods, uh, you know, uh, that it existed there were raised through that. And then on the basis of uh, that supposed, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, imag reimagined past, uh, it, uh, it gave uh, land rights, uh, uh, and political rights and national rights uh, for uh, Jews that were living in Poland, Russia, and Eastern Europe primarily, but also in Western Europe, uh, and then later on other parts of the world, uh, the right to acquire that land. Um, there is a problem in basing rights uh, uh, on that basis. Yeah, um, Any uh, anti-colonial way of thinking has to start from uh, uh, the present, actually, and present relations of domination, and it, 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 the, the goal is not to, uh, uh, you know, uh, prove uh, a possession based on archaic histories, uh, but to actually uh, remove uh, uh, present and past oppression, you know, uh, or reverse past oppression and uh, and uh, prevent uh, the perpetuation of it in the in the future. So. The premise, you know, should be that. And the premise should be recognition that a great injustice has been committed against the Palestinians. The premise should not be some imagined fraternal starting point where we're all having kumbaya moments. Okay? 
there is a problem with kumbaya logic. Okay, we're not here to hold hands, you know, uh, and say we we are all similar and we all you know come. No, actually, we have to recognize the problem. In the same way that dealing with any collective oppression requires recognizing the problem. You know, uh, it's not very useful to come and say, of course, men and women have many similarities with each other, but it's not very useful to come and do like uh, Qaddafi does in his uh, Green Book, for example. He starts, men and women are the same, but, uh, you know, he starts from that premise. What does that tell me? Okay, oh, we're similar? Okay, we have to talk actually of the problem that there were uh, millennia of male domination existing in society and across uh, societies. And we're working towards, you know, eradicating that, not, uh, not actually coming into some moment where men feel good about themselves because now, you know, they have uh, some similarities with women. They both can walk, for example, and talk, <laughs> and I don't know what, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, but I do, I do respect the sentiment. I think, you know, there are many, of course, shared, uh, 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 you know, uh, histories and so on and so forth. Um, now, individual uh, rights, um, I think uh, that is the, uh, one of the new discourses. Uh, also, human rights discourses, not just humanitarian, because there is also a difference, you know. Humanitarian relief is, uh, uh, was the style of the 1950s. And then post-80s, uh, there was a human rights wave uh, uh, in relation to Palestine, which is problematic also, and it has many serious repercussions because it prevents us from analyzing uh, the structural realities in that place. You know, uh, this is not just about uh, Palestinians having human rights. It's, again, about them having political rights and about them having national rights. Um, the uh, last question, uh, question about, uh, and of course there is a debate. Some people, uh, one note on this. Some people come with uh, uh, um, a vision of, well, we have to do that because Western society only understands the world through these frameworks. So unless we speak in the language of human rights, uh, white liberals will not listen to us. This is the usual argument that uh, is repeated in many of those circles that want to uh, use that. And uh, actually, uh, I think that uh, you know, unless you assert your position uh, uh, fully and clearly and articulate it uh, in a real and honest way, then you have no hope of liberation. You know, white liberals will be resistant to any uh, uh, position that challenges uh, uh, their outlook on the world unless they uh, absorb uh, uh, the, a vision that is anti-colonial. Anybody that has not fully absorbed an anti-colonial logic and uh, that has accepted the main premise, which is all peoples of the world have right to full political freedom and economic freedom, and that there shouldn't be peoples that are allocated greater rights than others. Anybody who hasn't fully absorbed that position and still thinks in terms of, well, yeah, there might be some Africans and Asians out there who are not good enough to achieve that. Or like, you know, uh, uh, you know, you have also some uh, conservatives who reject the very premise of equality to begin with, and now they're more emboldened and explicit, explicit about it, like Boris Johnson, who has just supported this, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, steal of the century or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, those people cannot be confronted without a full articulation of what is going on. It does not help us to distort our own reality and approximate it in language that has nothing to do with us. We cannot hijack our own voice and alienate ourselves from it. We have to speak to our reality and be honest about it. 
Settler, uh, colonial, uh, what was the last question? Sorry, I always seem to forget the third one. When did it, when was it first used? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing. Of course it did. But in, 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 in Europe and in these parts of the world, they were so resistant to talking about this in real terms. They were so resistant to talking about this at all. You know, the, the language was uh, either uh, that of, uh, uh, you know, complete erasure, uh, you know, no mention of Palestine whatsoever. Yeah. In fact, uh, when I was a graduate student, once uh, uh, it hit me, I was, I was at, a, at a beacon of uh, progressive thought called uh, Oxford, yeah? Uh, you know, it's so progressive you can't even imagine. And uh, one time I was sitting at this uh, uh, wonderful uh, thing called the high table, and this fellow kept on referring of, I visited Jordan in 1965 or whatever. And I discovered that all the places she visited in Jordan were in Palestine, okay? <laughs> but she, every time I would tell her, oh, so you, you must have had a good time in Palestine. Yes, Jordan was a wonderful place, okay? Every Palestinian has had some uh, experiences like that at some point in their life, I think, okay? Where you have this insistence. Uh, uh, yeah, to misrepresent the situation. So there was that erasure of just not using the word Palestine at all in that period. In the 50s and 60s, you hardly ever uh, uh, hear it. Yeah, you may hear Palestinians being used here and there, but not really even. You know, uh, it's it's uh, there was total erasure and. Uh, uh, there was another logic, which is you know the Palestinian is just a terrorist or as the violent uh, uh, person, which of course uh, has a long uh, colonial uh, trajectory as uh, anyone who has watched, uh, watched Western movies knows about this. If you've watched Cowboys and Indians, you'd think that uh, you know, uh, the native peoples are coming into the cowboy territory and uh, they're causing havoc and attacking these people in trains. You know, it's not that the trains are coming to their land. Yeah, so there was all that logic in the 50s and 60s about Palestine that you know, these are just... Uh, you know, frustrated, angry people. We don't know why. And uh, it, unfortunately, the logic continues to exist to this uh, very day. So Maxime Rodinson did not invent uh, that paradigm. In Arabic, it was standard. In many other parts of the world, uh, people were doing resolutions against uh, Israeli colonialism and so on. Um, there was a battle to frame Palestine even within Africa and Asia. And if you study the Bandung Conference closely, uh, there were some people even within Africa and Asia that had to be, uh, 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 you know, uh, their own thinking had to be liberated from the Western frameworks around this. Uh, but it worked out pretty quickly, you know, through the, uh, the presence of uh, Palestinians and other Arabs there in those arenas. They worked very hard to reverse the uh, way in which Palestine was viewed and uh, understood. Thank you. We're going to start with the gentleman at the back, and then I want to get some gender balance and invite somebody. Okay, no. Before, Ian, any, any uh, ladies out there want to ask a question? Here, good. Second. Hi. And then uh, Ian, yeah. Uh, Abi Wasserba, I am Israeli. Uh, I have a question. According to the terminology... So is, uh, is the microphone on? Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. Sorry. According to the terminology, when you say uh, colonization, you basically say that there is an external uh, body of force that come to indigenous people and uh, uses their force to control their population. But when you say indigenous, and again, uh, Palestine, it's a word that was used uh, first time by the British, or I think the, the Ottoman Empire. 
So again, if you go historically and you like when you say historically, you dig into the ground, what the findings that you'll find. So you'll find archaeological findings that will say, okay, the Jews were here. So uh, theoretically, you can say that the indigenous people are the Jews. And the colonization that is done is done by the Palestinians to the Israelis, right? Because if you say indigenous, right, who was living there in that land f so for so many years, right? So it's it's funny that once you say that there is external force. So usually when you say a colony, then you can say, okay, there's, I don't know, someone came from Europe to another territory that it's not in his own ownership, and then he stated some control. But at that point, shouldn't we address to, the, to, the, to this conflict as a land conflict? And again, you can say, okay, if the Jews are the indigenous, so the Palestinians come and try to claim some rights over the land of other nationality, right? And uh, when you're saying uh, 1948, so I think before 1948, I don't know if many people here know about the history. So during the period of... Try and keep it brief, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, during the, uh, the period before 1948, uh, the land was basically the settlements that were here, were there were Jewish and uh, Palestinians. So in 1948, United Nations uh, declared on... Uh, two nationalities on the same kind of in, in the same territory, and in '48 there was a war engaged between the Palestinians and the Israelis. So during that war, many refugees uh, fled to different uh, to other countries. So you cannot say that there was some kind of uh, only. Oh no 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 sorry. No, sorry. Let, let the, let the yeah. speaker. So the, my question is: shouldn't shouldn't we address no, no, no. instead it's, it's of using question, only yeah. one perspective of looking on only one side and saying that there is oppressed and one, or should we just address it as two side conflict? Okay, thank you. Uh, down here, Nadine. Hi, my name is Chichi. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about whether you think that um, a politics of decolonization as it exists today is, um, is, is actually preventing us from moving towards like a, this paradigm of anti-colonialism. Like, anti um, because I sort of like flip on this because in one sense it seems like it's just maybe a watering down and like this is, the, the, this is where we are and these are the values that people can accept and like, you know, if, it, like, if we look at the, the progress that has been made in getting this into the mainstream discourse then maybe that's a good thing. But then, then I also think that it really does stop us from confronting the real issues at stake as you've outlined. Um, and I like, yeah, I just, I wonder whether it's, they're actually like opposed in that way. Thank you. Third question, Ian. Thank you very much. Um, really, thank you for that fascinating survey of uh, epistemological and intellectual questions. But do you think it is possible to decolonize the focus of your uh, interesting talk in the current political reality, given the imbalance of power, uh, the emergence, whether you like it or not, of an Israeli state and people? Is there any possibility of the emergence of one democratic state with equal rights for Arabs and Jews achievable? Between It's very fashionable to talk about between the river and the sea uh, these days. 
I myself don't see any way of achieving that. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, so uh, for the first uh, speaker, um, I mean, I'm glad actually that you rehearsed uh, this point because it's always worth uh, uh, remembering uh, that uh, colonial discourse is very powerful, you know, uh, and it resonates uh, within European countries uh, because these were countries that were engaged in colonization pro programs, uh, and they uh, gave the Zionist movement the logic that allowed it to develop in the first place. Okay, so the main logic of 19th century uh, European colonialism was uh, a logic to de-indigenize the native and indigenize the colonist or the settler. In the case of Palestine, uh, this logic was even uh, uh, could even fi find greater effect because of the biblical uh, references uh, and because of the historic Jewish connection uh, to the land. And of course, there is a historic Jewish connection to the land in the same way uh, that there is a historic uh, Arab connection to the land and there is a historic uh, connection to the land uh, for many parts of uh, humanity. Now, is historic connection, though, the same as uh, uh, indigeneity? And I think this is where uh, the issue uh, uh, becomes uh, uh, problematic in this uh, discourse. Because the whole purpose of this discourse is to say, People who have been living here for thousands of years, and actually we don't know how long they've been living here. Because the, these are the people of the territory. The Palestinians are the people of the territory. They're the, uh, uh, the, the total sum of that territory's historic experience in the same way that the people living in Spain are the total sum of the history of that country's experience, which, of course, had a much longer history of, uh, for example, uh, Arab-Muslim political control than Jewish control over Palestine. Uh, had ever had. You know, the Jewish state in Palestine lasted, uh, uh, that Zionists always referred to, which is the kingdom of uh, David and Solomon, was uh, about seven decades. Okay? And they say, okay, over that seven decades, we're going to erase everything else. Let's forget that there were Canaanites before. Let's forget that the Bible is a document of conquest and colonization. Actually, if you look at it, it is about the conquest of the land of Canaan on the part of a, a Middle Eastern tribe. Okay, or a set of tribes, 12 tribes. Okay, Nothing wrong with that. The, the whole regional uh, political structure in that period operated in that way. All right? But what, if you say that is the only part of that history that matters, and if you use that to say the people who have been living there have no connection to the land because it's only the people that are mentioned in that text that have the connection, then you're engaging in a great act of historical violence and political violence in the present against those people that are living there. Okay? You can make the same argument about any territory in the world, this imagined uh, sense of uh, purity or pure ownership over land is problematic and false, not just problematic, it's false. It doesn't exist anywhere. You know, there is no such thing as one pure population group that has always lived in one place. Palestine today must have had people who come from the pre-Canaanite -pre period, from the Stone Age, and must have had people that came during uh, uh, different other uh, periods, ranging from the Roman to the Canaanite to the Arab period to uh, other periods. If you look historically, the longest period is the Arab period. You know, that's uh, 15 centuries. 
Zionists came in the 19th century, and they were saying that period doesn't matter. And all the remnants of the populations from previous periods don't matter, including probably Jews that became Christians and later became Muslims. Okay? Now, this is point number one. If you want to go into further problematizations, by the way, I don't want to open the door into archaic historical discussions. But even if you go into the biblical narratives, you have another set of problems, which is the kingdom of uh, uh, David and Solomon existed in the West Bank, and the Philistines and other population groups controlled the coastal areas. You know, there was never any trace of a serious Jewish kingdom in that area. So Tel Aviv, Haifa, you know, where my family comes from, for example, you know, we're part of a different reality. So I could complicate the story for you, but I don't want to get there because then I'll be accepting your logic as well. That somehow, if we resolve who owned that territory 3,000 years ago, we're going to, uh, you know, uh, arrive... Uh, uh, at, uh, at, uh, at, you know, the, uh, uh, the deed of ownership uh, to that land, you know. The real uh, basis for talking about this should be uh, about people, about human beings, about caring for human beings and viewing them uh, from a position of equality. The main problem with Zionism wasn't that uh, it advocated uh, uh, Jews li living in that territory. That was not, that's not the Zionist project, by the way. Zionist project is to expel the native population and establish a Jewish state in that territory. You see what I mean? There's a difference between statehood also and, and uh, habitation. Yeah? So this was not just even about, well, you know, I want to live in, in, in some territory because uh, uh, I have some uh, connection with it historically. You know, I have a connection with Andalusia that is very strong. I read lots of Andalusian poetry in Arabic. But I would never claim that uh, the Spaniards should be all kicked out from there because they're descendants of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, European Franks uh, in, Fr in France or whatever, and invent the whole history around that. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe I'll visit Spain, I'll have a good time there. <laughs> maybe one day my retirement dream will be realized and I live there. But, yeah, it's... Uh, anyways, uh, the other side of the problem is that when you read, uh, there's a lot of people today that try to er erase colonialism from Zionism. And my solution for them is just go read early Zionist texts and we'll solve your problem because, you know, start with the Jewish state, uh, quite a canonical text in the Zionist uh, canon, you know, uh, Theodore Herzl, you can't get more canonical than that. He, he says, we have to colonize the territory, we have to set up a colonial company. And actually, by the way, he's not just committed to Palestine, he's debating, should we colonize Argentina or should we colonize Palestine? Okay? And the, he has a whole section in that book, Palestine or Argentina. Okay? And colonialism is used freely by him. When do uh, Israelis stop using the word colonialism? Uh, when uh, it becomes a bad word in the international lexicon. Okay? When they were trying to convince Britain to come and implement uh, the Zionist project, they were saying, oh, we're part of the colonist effort to, you know, to spread the European civilization and enlighten the world. We'll be a buffer zone against uh, Oriental barbarism. That's the language that we're using. So, you know, um, uh, so I, I suggest, you know, I, I really thank you for asking this question because I think there's a lot of soul searching that has to be done and a lot of rethinking 
many of our presuppositions around uh, around this. And really, I care actually about all peoples in that uh, uh, territory. I think that uh, uh, part of what colonialism does is that it causes uh, misery for everybody engaged in it, as Fanon actually highlighted. Uh, we should not forget, of course, that uh, the far greater misery is caused to the colonized population. Uh, but you know, the process of controlling somebody else, for having greater rights than them, also has as a burden for uh, people in its own, in its own way. It causes uh, much uh, damage. Now, uh, is uh, uh, the question that you asked, Chichi, is uh, is incredibly important, and I, I think again, um, like you, I'm sympathetic uh, to some of the original, um, you know, epistemological. Uh, presuppositions uh, that uh, this project had, you know, who would be opposed to the idea of curricular diversity or diversity of hiring or things like that? Of course, we're not opposed to that. Uh, but the problem is, as you uh, hinted, is that sometimes uh, that becomes a cover for not taking additional steps. You know, they come and tell you, oh, we are a diverse place. What are you talking about? You know, we are a decolonized space because, uh, oh, we have uh, one Indian lecturer out of the 40 or 50 members of the department. Uh, th that's proof. And she happens to be a woman. Can you believe it? Uh, <laughs> it's quite incredible. You know, uh, and you're sitting there and you're like, okay, you know, uh, uh, it prevents you from actually making your argument. I've been often confronted with that while doing activism on Palestine and campuses. People will come and tell you, what are you talking about? We're diverse. Yeah, uh, and then of course the politics of uh, victimhood uh, competition has produced bodies of thought that uh, uh, are uh, inimical to intersectional solidarity as well, like, uh, for example, Afro pessimism. You know, uh, uh, by dividing oppressed peoples into competing groups, uh, we suddenly cannot do solidarity with each other, because uh, uh, you know. And somebody will come and tell you, well, I went to Palestine and somebody was racist to me or somebody was sexist to me or something like that. And uh, they forget that that's not what solidarity is about. Of course, uh, there is different modalities of oppression that exist in every society. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been uh, doing solidarity with, uh, 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 for example, native communities in Canada. And sometimes I would go to uh, places where people would, uh, who read uh, the Bible said uh, terrible things about Palestine. But I'm not there to convince them how great Palestine is or why its people need to be liberated. I'm there to support them in their effort to protect their territories uh, uh, from total eradication and to support their uh, struggle uh, to regain any territory that they could regain. So, um, you know, that is why I'm there. That's what solidarity is about. And so how do we become less narcissistic, uh, I think, is, <laughs> is an element in, in, this, uh, in this question. Um, but also, we should be cognizant of the epistemological journey that led to this. What has happened, if we dig deeply into this actually, is we find uh, that you had one body of work that came out of places like Palestine that were confronting ongoing colonialism. And you see it uh, even in English language. You see it in Edward Said, you know, who again refused to be called a post-colonial insisted on a certain uh, uh, way of viewing things that, uh, um, that, uh, uh, that was a universalist discourse. So he was opposed to, for example, uh, defenses of the fragment or other ways of looking at things that came out of India, for example. You know, the subaltern school took a different direction. Uh, and then 
you had a different direction developing out of Latin America, uh, you know, uh, especially with uh, people like uh, uh, Walter Minolo and others. Yeah. But those were responding to different realities. And instead of condemning or whatever, we have to understand where these projects came from. Yeah. Uh, the subaltern project came in a context where the Indian state was independent, but it became a very powerful sovereign state. It became so powerful that the state was intervening uh, uh, what became the source of oppression within internal Indian dynamics. So the struggle of Indian intellectuals uh, in that period, particularly radical ones, um, was against a powerful uh, state that was uh, creating new dynamics of uh, uh, you know, oppression, uh, especially of marginalized groups within that society and rural communities and marginalized uh, you know, populations and so on and so forth. So, uh, by uh, the very nature of that project, uh, the categories that were used were categories that rejected universalist presuppositions that, were or, that, were, that are necessary and important for national liberation struggles. So it became, uh, you know, it gave uh, a basis for an anti-nationalist almost strand of thought. Yeah. But you look in Edward Said, there's no anti-nationalism. Of course not. There's, is a, there's a, an appreciation of nationalism, if it's of a, an anti-colonial kind, of course. You know, he's very suspicious of nationalisms that are deployed by powerful states. But if nationalism is about uh, achieving uh, sovereignty for oppressed peoples, he doesn't have a problem with that. And therefore, you know, he's always talking in universals and so on and so forth. Now, universalist thinking is rejected in another zone like uh, Latin America. You know, the whole, uh, for example, intellectual project of somebody like uh, 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 Minolo, you know, arises out of uh, uh, a relationship between a place like Latin America, which uh, has multiple layers of the domination. The first layer being between, uh, um, you know, uh, a large native population whose cultural identity has been under siege and has been facing erasure for uh, centuries, but that has, was regaining a sense of self and was beginning to gain awareness uh, uh, of the need to recover aspects of that self uh, over the course of uh, the f past few decades and has been engaged in a very uh, strong struggle uh, around that that took also not just epistemological forms, but also political uh, forms. And we see this with the uh, uh, you know, land movements in uh, different parts of Latin America, and we see this also uh, in uh, movements like the Zapatistas and, and others. There it becomes important to challenge, again, universalist discourses uh, and speak about uh, the uh, ways in which modernity covers up for coloniality and uh, so on and so forth, because the, what you're fighting against uses modernist <coughs> language and says, you know, you, you, you are underdeveloped and we need to civilize you. So you have to confront that. A place like Palestine, though, in these models, loses its language. Because the only suitable language for speaking about Palestine is the language of national liberation of the 60s and 70s and 50s. That is the language that that, 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 that actually describes our situation. We have a settler colonist group that is t taking over our territories that wants us eventually to uh, uh, be in the position that exists in the Americas uh, and Australia today. So um, we have to stick to that original 
language. That becomes actually part of our epistemological uh, uh, struggle. There was a, a last question, uh, you know, about the possibilities and so on, and it's a depressing reality, and the balance of power sucks, and, you know. Um, I'll be honest with you. Look, that was the basis uh, for the Palestinian National Project from 1974 onwards, is the balance of power sucks. Uh, therefore, we adjust to the balance of power and, you know, I, I described it earlier as a form of chronophobia, fear of time. We'll lose more and more as time progresses. So let's try to accept anything. The only problem with that is uh, 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 colonialism by default, because it's a continuum, as Eric Wolf uh, really eloquently described it, uh, is, is hu always hungry. You can't quench its thirst uh, for acquisition. It, every time you give a concession, it wants more and more and more and more. And that's a, a, a serious historical lesson. And Palestine uh, is a very good example. Uh, you know, uh, when the Palestinian leadership went into uh, uh, the Madrid conference, even earlier, when the Palestinian leadership in 1988 declared the, the, the declaration of statehood, and they were saying, Okay, we'll take the 67 territories, which is 22% of our land, and we're even willing to accept your control over 78% of our land and your renaming of it and your oppression of our people in it, and, 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 and. Okay, what did the Israeli authorities, and by the way, population, because it's very important. Sometimes people say, well, the good Israeli people. The problem with colonialism is that it produces political shifts also in peoples. They, they adjust to the reality of oppression and they normalize it. You know, I speak to some people, uh, white, white South Africans today, that still, uh, uh, you know, lament the days of apartheid. They say, well, look, it was an orderly system and we had the functioning, I don't know what, buses or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's for you. Yeah. Uh, and, and oh, uh, by the way, once I had an argument with uh, with somebody that was telling me that uh, Africans arrived there before blacks because uh, they, you know, which reminds me of the argument that was made earlier uh, in the first question, you know, because oh, apparently Zulus came in the 17th century according to this uh, alleged uh, you know historical narrative. Uh, and Algeria, by the way, the French used to claim that uh, they were there before the Algerians because St. Augustine was Christian, you know, so, uh, and he came from the uh, North African coast. So, you know, this is very typical stuff. Um, but anyways, uh, uh, this is the, the, the problem uh, that we're dealing with when we uh, go into this logic. They cannot have enough. And that is what is happening today. They're saying, we don't want 67. We want everything. And not just we want everything. We want to even destroy the category of Palestinian. All the Palestinians that we expelled, we don't want them to call themselves Palestinians anymore. You know what Netanyahu calls them? Fake refugees. Okay? This is the language that is used. So they don't want, they don't want even the sense of self to, to, to exist. Uh, it's a complete project of destruction, and it will not stop voluntarily. It has to be stopped through raising the cost uh, for colonization. That is the point when uh, settler colonists stopped their activities. It was very hard, by the way, to stop uh, Ian Smith and the settler colonists in Zimbabwe, or what they, what they called Rhodesia at the time. You know, it was very hard to stop the Africans uh, from engaging in their territories. Unfortunately, we were never able to stop 
the uh, uh, American settler colonial project uh, from uh, uh, you know achieving its final objectives or the Australian one. And that led then now, and to go back to Chi-Chi's question, to also the use of decolonization logic to beautify these projects today, make people feel good about themselves. And I see this especially in New Zealand. You know, when they say, speak of like, yeah, we recognize the Maori origins and we have a common uh, pact together and things like that, you know, um, it can, you know, that's uh, one of the most extreme cases. But you also see it in the movement uh, in Canada of, yeah, everybody starts every meeting with, uh, I acknowledge I'm on uh, native territory, you know, and they mentioned the name of the tribe that was eradicated from that uh, territory. Um, but, you know, uh, you see what they're doing today. What are they contributing to uh, native rights? Very little. Uh, well, are they are they advocating genuine uh, sovereignty and genuine uh, uh, reversal of the dispossession that took place? Uh, I don't think that uh, that's Trudeau's agenda today. So, thank you. We we have to stop here because it's a close at half past seven sharp. Before we express our thanks, just to let you know, the next uh, Middle East Centre event is on Wednesday, the fifth of February organized with LSE Gender. It's a book launched by Nazanin Shawokni, assistant professor in LSE Gender. We'll be discussing a new book, Women in Place, the Politics of Gender Segregation. Further details can be found on our website. Um, please join me in thanking very, very much uh, Professor Takriti for that. <laughs>